Pray with me now this morning as we begin. Heavenly Father, we are here before your presence. We don't ask that you join us. You're already here. And through your Holy Spirit, Lord, we come before you, asking you through our Lord and our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you help me to preach truthfully according to your word, that you help your children here listen and allow the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts, to apply your word to their lives. Because if he doesn't, then Lord, we become dull of hearing, and that's scary. And we don't want to be there, Father. We want your word to, to work in us, because it's your word that you breathe out. It is your word that's good for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, Lord. And that is what we desire today, to be more like our Savior, our Lord Jesus. And for that, we need your Holy Spirit. So help us now. Be honored, be magnified, Lord Jesus. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. So, I know perhaps uh, many of you have seen TV shows, those uh, crime shows, right? Uh, like uh, Law and Order. Some of you know, some of you are even hearing the little uh, theme song right now. Um, so, these, these shows are very interesting because you have some type of case, some type of investigation, some type, something that goes on. And at some point throughout the show or that particular episode, they're going to land in an interrogation room. Seen those? They're going to land in an interrogation room, and they're going to be asking that whoever that suspect is sitting on the one side of the table and uh, the interrogator on the other asking them questions. One spotlight, it's always white, right? It looks crazy. But there they are, and they're just asking them questions. What happened? And, and question after question. And what's the goal? The goal is to get to the truth. The goal is to understand what is happening, what has happened. Tell me, then the more questions that I ask, hopefully the, 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 the picture becomes clear, right? Now, for us, well, none of us are attorneys. None of us have been in interrogation. I actually, that was one of the projects that I did when I was in college where we had to work on false confessions, and we had this whole simulation, and we went into this, and, and, and we, we've seen football players cry. You know, when you're accusing them that they've done something of cheating, and all of a sudden they're like, whoa, what's going on? Like, because now they're, they're whole, you know, a college professional athletic career might be in jeopardy, right? Because if you're caught cheating academically, that causes perhaps for a dismissal, even not playing, and you're losing a scholarship perhaps even. So and you see these things. So it's, it's very scary because you're trying to see what happens even in a false confession. But the goal is always to get to the truth. And there were times when we know that someone cheated because we're watching on camera, and you're probing and you're probing, and you want them to be able to say, hey, I want you to tell me the truth. Like, you can't get away with it. I've seen it with my own eyes. Now, if you're not a lawyer, which most of you probably are not, you're still aware of what I'm talking about. Because at some level, you've been a parent. And you've had your child sitting in front of you, right? Lucas, <laughs> Lucas, just, Lucas' eyes just opened up. you like, whoa. Um, but you've had your child sitting in front of you, and you know that they did something. And you're pressing them. And there they are denying it. It wasn't me, I promise you, it wasn't. And you're like, like you're not going to fool me. You can't con a con man, right? Like, you can't, you can't lie to, a, to one that's perfected the, the art of lying, right, as a sinner. <laughs> and there they are lying through their teeth. Or even you as a teacher, perhaps. I used to be a teacher. I know we have a couple of teachers in here. Have you ever brought that child to the front desk? Come here. You, come here. Both of you. <laughs> I have this project. And all of a sudden you find and you say, 
<laughs> these answers kind of match. Oh, but I didn't cheat. Are you sure? Then all of a sudden, the, it was him. He cheated off me. No, it was the other one. We, we don't play the blame game. But the point that I'm trying to make is that we always want to get to the truth at, at any level because truth matters. Truth matters. I've said this before. You guys know this, and I'm, we're going to continue repeating it ad nauseum. Truth matters. Okay? And even more so, if that's just regarding worldly things as a test, as a project, a homework assignment, things of this world, how much more with regarding that truth that has to deal with our souls? The truth that has to deal with our eternity. And so questioning is not a bad thing. So what's my point? Is precisely that, that we have to get to the truth, and to get truth involves asking questions. It's not wrong to ask questions. Sometimes, you, and you've seen people that get, hey, hey, who are you to question me? Why are you questioning me? Almost like if their character, their integrity is enough for you to not question me. I haven't said or done anything to give you the inclination that you can go ahead and question me. And there's people like that. But we can't be okay with just simply superficial responses. We ought to probe. We ought to probe. And here this morning, in our text, in Acts 19, we continue with uh, our series in Acts, as we've taken a break. And we see Paul in Ephesus. We see Paul in Ephesus. All right, so read your text here as you open up your Bibles, Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. And ultimately, we want, we want the truth, not just to get to the truth, but even if the person is giving you an answer, we want to know that that truth, that answer, corroborates with what I'm seeing. Because if there's a disconnection with what you're telling me and what I'm observing, I'm going to press a little bit more. Okay, so... Read with me, Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. And it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And this is the reading of God's Word. Now immediately, in the first two verses, we find this word disciple. Now the last time we spoke of this word disciple was back in Acts 11. Then you know when that was? Back in June of 2020. Okay? So I know for sure you don't remember what I said. I don't remember what I said. So... And some of you weren't even here when we were, we were going through that. But that's when we actually spoke of in, 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 in Acts, and we came to this word, disciple. What, and, and, and in Acts 11, what we actually see is there were these men of Cyprus and Cyrene that were speaking to the Hellenists, proclaiming Jesus to them. These Hellenists end up believing the gospel. Okay, they end up believing the gospel. And it says there, that in Antioch, it's when the first disciples were first called Christians. 
It's in that section, if you, it kind of jogs your memory, that's where we see that. So this word disciple was not an uncommon word during this time. There were many disciples. Jesus wasn't the only one that had disciples. There were many, right? And we're going to see here, Paul, when Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, when he's actually saying, some are, some are saying they're of Paul, some are saying they're Apollos, right? John, we know, that had disciples, because in Mark, Mark 2, listen to what it says, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. So you see what's happening? Each one has a group of disciples. Now, we don't use this word today. When was the last time that you were called a disciple of anyone? Probably not. It's not not a common word. Perhaps one of the more common words in our verbiage today is mentor, or perhaps a mentee, right? It's not even a trainer or a trainee, because a trainer just trains and shows you the SOPs, the standard operating procedures, whatever it might be, and there you go. But a mentor has a more specific task at hand, right? Which is to show you, to teach you, to hopefully... um, inspire you to, to do things a certain way. But even you as a mentee are still, you can take that, but you're still allowed to kind of mold it into your way of doing things. But we don't have that flexibility when it comes to the gospel. When it comes to the gospel, we don't get to manipulate the truth or water it down to whatever convenience we may have. If we're a disciple of Christ, which the word disciple at the end of the day means to be a learner, to be a follower, That means I'm a follower of Christ. I'm learning from Christ. I'm seeing what Christ did. I'm seeing the way He spoke. I'm seeing what He's doing. I'm observing through the Scriptures. And that's what I'm going to apply. The message stays the same. Maybe the way things are done, but the message doesn't change. It can't change. It must not change. Okay. And that is what disciple means. So it's a learner, a follower. And here you have 12 disciples. There's something here that happens. If you're pay close. Why does Paul ask this question? Because there has to be some type of observation that Paul made that is saying, there's something that doesn't jive here. There's something, we're not told what it is, but it seems to be that there's something that Paul must have observed that is not jiving with what they're saying. And that causes him to go into these other questions, to probe a little bit more. And to prompt this questioning, which is why we say there's nothing wrong with asking questions. We see Paul do it himself. Paul is asking questions because he needs to get to the bottom. I want to understand what's going on. Again, it doesn't say it in Scripture, but this is my suspicion. This is what I speculate. There's something there. And questions, what, what's good about questions is that they're going to elicit a what? A response, an answer. Right? And that response, that answer, is hopefully going to provide a little bit more clarity as to what's happening, to whatever you want to get to the bottom of. And that's what we see. Look, at, look what it says in, in, in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see what Jesus himself did there. 
he was asking the believers a question. Now, the disciples didn't say, come on, like, seriously, why are you asking me? Like, Peter kind of does this. Say, Peter, do you love me? And at one point, Peter was like, come on, really? Like, you keep on asking me this question. I already told you. Of course I love you. But here, Jesus is saying, what do, who do people say that I am? And he goes from this general question to a specific question. Who do you say that I am? And these are the very disciples that are walking with him. These are the very disciples that are walking with him. So in addition to that question that we see, who do you say that I am? Or even Pontius Pilate when he's before Jesus and he says, what is truth? Paul asks a specific question here in our text. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That is a very interesting question that hopefully we're going to get to the bottom of, but I want to be able to say this. Spurgeon made an interesting observation when, when he was speaking in reference to the verse, and this is what he says. He says, Our faith must either be boldly affirmed or sorrowfully denied, but it should not remain the subject of question. It is a great pity that so many Christians are always saying, Have I believed? So many Christians struggle with, am I a believer? Have I really believed? We've, I've had those, those conversations. I don't know if I'm really a believer. But what Spurgeon is actually saying in light of this is that, whatever it might be, this question shouldn't be a gray area. Either you know you've believed, or you can sorrowfully say, you know what? And deny and say, you know what? I haven't believed and who Jesus is, and who he says he is. Which is fine, and it's a pity that you've taken that, that response. But you can't leave this in a gray area because Scripture doesn't allow you just simply to straddle the fence. Scripture doesn't allow you to mean, say, have one foot in, one foot out. I believe when it's convenient, or I won't believe when it's convenient. Either you fully understand who the Lord Jesus is, and he's your Lord, or he's not. And my prayer at the end of the sermon is that your answer to that question would be a resounding yes. That, that you say, when did you receive the Holy Spirit? When I repented of my sins. And by faith put my trust in the Lord Jesus. That, that would be your answer to the question, when did you believe? Okay? So, again, at, at the heart of this, this is where Paul is pressing. Is the Lord your Savior? Now here comes the second part, which is the Holy Spirit's presence in a believer. Which at the end of the day, this is really where the, where the crux of our, of our passage is this morning. The title of the message is, When the Holy Spirit Takes Residence. Because this is what we're going to see in this portion of Scripture. What happens, all the way from verses 3 all the way to verse 6, what happens when the Holy Spirit takes residence? Up until this point, the Ephesians had a different understanding of what baptism is. It's clear here in the scriptures. Now, in the previous chapter, in chapter 18, Apollos also had a different understanding. But Apollos was a little bit more advanced. That's why Priscilla and Aquila had to go ahead and pull him aside and say, you know what, let me explain these things with a little bit more clarity. Like, you haven't said anything wrong, but there's more. Because John's baptism, John's baptism, 
means something. Okay? And by the way, beloved, as a point of application, something to always remember is that all of us at the end of the day are still learning. No one here in this room, not including me, not even Edwin, no one in this, group, in this room can ever claim, I have mastered the Scriptures. And if you and I can claim and say, you know what, I haven't mastered the Scriptures, you can continue mining and mining all the days of your life. And you're never going to come and, and fully say, you know what, I understood it all. Now, you're still going to continue learning, but there's still a message that we need to understand. You might not be a theologian on this side of heaven, which is fine. The Bible doesn't require you to be a theologian. Your salvation does not depend on how much knowledge or your theological acumen. It doesn't. What the Bible does require is for you to put your faith and trust in the living Christ. Amen. Period. And that is what Paul is hopefully going to get to here. But because we never, we will. Ne- but just because we will never master. The scriptures doesn't, doesn't mean that we can go ahead and play fast and loose with the scriptures. We can't. And we must not play fast and loose with the scriptures. We cannot simply pick and choose and, you know, twist the scriptures to our convenience or to our benefit. We can't. The scriptures doesn't give you or me that authority. Because all the scriptures breathed by God, which is my point in my prayer, is good for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And therefore, it's his word that's inerrant. I'm not inerrant. I am fallible. He is infallible. And this is his word. And I'm going to trust the infallible God that wrote it, that inspired it. Does that make sense? And so that is what we're hopefully going to be able to see here. Because if we get this wrong, beloved, it can have dire consequences upon your souls. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ, pay attention. Because to get this wrong can have an impact on your eternity. And that's the weight of what Scripture, that's the the weight of what the Gospel means. It's not to scare you, but it is a warning. It is a warning. So what's the difference between John's baptism in with the Holy Spirit? Now, I will say this, it's not in my notes, so sorry Karen, but I didn't know that Victor was going to be teaching Sunday school on the Holy Spirit. No clue. So, out of this kind of overlaps, by God's providence, what he was teaching. And that's the Lord's doing. I'll take it. Here we go. And by the way, he's going to continue on that next week, so I definitely encourage you, join him. That's a plug-in. Victor, you owe me $10. But, John's baptism, what is it? This has caused a lot of confusion because a lot of people say baptized in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. And there's even some translations that said baptism by the Holy Spirit. And then that creates this whole different understanding of what baptism really is. And has led even some Christians to believe some different, have a different theological understanding. And so we're going to address that here in a second. Matthew 3, verses 5 through 6. Who is John the Baptist? He was a forerunner. He was one that was mentioning, he's coming, he's coming, prepare the way of the Lord. That was the message that John the Baptist had, and he knew his calling. He wasn't doubting whether, he knew exactly 
what his calling was. And in Matthew 3, verses 5 through 6, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him, meaning John, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. That is what Paul is referring to. His message was clear. John's goal was to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. And how were they going to prepare? By, by confessing their sins. Matthew 3, 2. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Repent of what? Of your sins. And to repent means that you had to confess. You had to agree with God, I am a sinner. I have violated your law. Your law that is perfect and holy. And I have violated it. And because I violated it, I'm a sinner. I stand as a sinner before you. I violated it because I am a sinner. But that's, that's, that's precisely the heart of it. You have to confess your sins because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But even John knew that there was a better baptism to come. John knew that. That's why he says, guys, I can't, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. I can't even, like, who am I? My calling was to prepare the way for Jesus. And in Matthew 3.11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, referring to Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, John knew very well what the baptism is. His baptism was limited. It was limited to only that of repentance. But Jesus was coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit. This understanding is crucial because this is exactly what Paul has in mind. What Matthew is talking about, right? Describing, I mean, it's this understanding that Christ is coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Paul didn't get stuck in John's baptism. Paul understood the Holy Spirit's presence in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God. And there were certain men, certain people in certain offices that had the Spirit of God upon them. But like Joel says, there's going to be the prophet Joel. There's going to be a day when he will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. And this is that moment. This is what Paul is going at. And he would have done him a great disservice, by the way. If he would have just simply stayed quiet and said, you know, they're baby Christians, you know, you know, extend your grace to them. No, he wanted to let them know, guys, there's something better. The message is partial. Let me give you the full message. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I love the fact that Luke, the one who's writing Acts, the same gospel writer, Luke, writes here. He captures in what Paul says the centrality of Jesus. He brings back into focus, it's Jesus. That's who this is about. The baptism is about Christ. They were baptized in who? Not in Paul. They weren't baptized in John again. Not that, not that John baptized them in his name, but it wasn't the same baptism that John had. He baptized them 
in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because that is what baptism is. And some of you might be thinking, well, but then why did Jesus get baptized? That's a fair question. Why did Jesus get baptized? If John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Precisely because Jesus is assimilating. He's assimilating with sinners. Even though he never sinned. He was identifying with sinners there in the river. And that is what we need to understand. Because Jesus had no reason to get baptized. Other than to identify with you and with me. With sinners like us. This is the Savior that we have, beloved. The one that identifies with us in every way. Beloved, this ought to bring a joy that even in your darkest moments you have a Savior that identifies with you. Which is the point of Hebrews. Again, it ought to bring joy to us when you hear and you think of this. Not because I'm telling you, be joyful. But the, the sheer, the mere fact of just thinking and pondering, my Savior did that for me? He went to the River Jordan to be baptized when he was sinless, to identify with me? He went to Calvary's Hill to die upon a cross for me? Yes, that's your Savior. He is the central figure of the Old and the New Testament. It all converges in Jesus. Not in Paul. Not in John the Baptist. Not in Peter. It all converges in Christ. He is the Messiah. He is Yeshua, our Savior. He is Emmanuel, the one that's with us. This is Jesus. And this is what the gospel is. Is Jesus at the center of your testimony? We just heard a couple of testimonies here two weeks ago. And a couple of months before that, we heard another five testimonies. But you have to ask yourself, is Christ at the center of your testimony? I, I love how Tony, when he shares his testimony, he says, I, I'm a, I used to be a Jehovah's Witness. And the only reason he was a Jehovah's Witness is because they just got to him first. But if a Muslim would have gone to him, Maybe he would have been a Muslim. If it would have been a Mormon, maybe he would have been a Mormon. But who is at the center of your testimony? Is it Christ? The living God, the one that died and paid for your sins. Is Christ the object of your faith? Because if he's not, then in whom have you believed in? In what have you believed in then? Into a religion? Into a religion that promise that you're going to be blessed? That you're going to get everything on this side of heaven? That you're going to prosper? That you're going to be wealthy, good off, you know, financially speaking, well off financially speaking? No. It's in Christ. He is the focal point. He has been and will always be the focal point of all of history, all of scripture, for all eternity. He's at the center of the story. He is the groom that we await as a church. So what then does the Holy Spirit, when, when does the Holy Spirit make residence? When does the Holy Spirit make residence? 
when you believe. When you trust Christ for your salvation. When you trust Christ to forgive you of your sins. That is when, Christ, that is when the Holy Spirit takes residence in your life and in your heart. There is no... Just wait a couple weeks, you know, and wait. There's no supply shortage of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's none of that. To everyone who believes, the Lord God sends His Spirit. Now, that's not my words. Ephesians 1.3 tells us that. It says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. And Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that is in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There's no secret. And I want to make a side note here because it's, it's imperative that I do. There is no secret or additional steps that you need to take to get an additional outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Scripture doesn't teach that. And I know that this particular verse has been taken to support that of Pentecostals or Charismatics that want to go ahead and say, well, you see that the moment the Spirit came, what were they, do- what were they doing? Speaking in tongues, prophesying immediately. Beloved, the reason we see this is, is nothing else that if you go back to Acts 2, what happened in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost? The Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. And what did they do? They spoke in tongues. Were they these angelic tongues that no one can go ahead and understand? No. They were tongues that anyone could have. Yeah, they were, but people understood. Now, of course, some people thought that they were drunk. But it was a Spirit. It's just language. It's not for the purpose of me to somehow edify, to get some secret gleaning from, from, from heaven so that God can disclose to me something that He will not reveal to anyone else. That is not what tongues is for. And at this time, remember, they don't have the New Testament. We're affirming, we're confirming. They, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. But the Holy Spirit is alive. He is working in you and in me. But not to the extent that we see in, this new te- in the beginning of the New Testament. God doesn't need you and me to be speaking in tongues to get a message across. All you need to point them is to the Word of God. Point them to the truth. They have a Bible. It's been translated. You can give it to them in their language. But you see what's happening is that it's, mis- been, it's been misconstrued. It's been manipulated to prove something that's not there. And I get it, there's people that may disagree, that's fine. But I don't see it in Scripture. These are not the tongues. And prophesying, they are proclaiming. Acts 2, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And yes, there will be moments when the Lord will press upon you. You might want to call it an impression. Oh, the Lord spoke to me. But you sense in your spirit, there's something here. I need to say something. I need to make this phone call to this brother. I don't know why, but I need to make the phone call. 
And then on the other night saying, I needed this. I needed to hear this. I needed you because right now I was struggling. Because the Holy Spirit's at work in you. But we want to go ahead and just push the Holy Spirit aside. And he's like, yeah, you know, the Holy Spirit is just our seal. Is that all the Holy Spirit was sent for? Just to be, just to be our guarantee? To be our inheritance? To be a seal for our inheritance? No. The Holy Spirit came to take residence in you and in me for something greater. Not in the sense of what the Pentecostals may say, oh, well, greater things than these you're going to be doing. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to be doing the very things that Christ, and perhaps even more. That's not what we're talking about. But now you have the Holy Spirit, the Helper, right? This is what John says, and we're going to get to that in a second. But there's a new reality in these lives of these 12 disciples here in Ephesus. They are now part of the body of Christ. Baptized by Paul into the body of Christ. That is why the Holy Spirit is in them. The Holy Spirit has taken residence in them. The same Holy Spirit that took residence in Paul and in the disciples. And in many other believers at that time. The same Holy Spirit. So what's my conclusion? When did you receive? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The question hasn't changed. The question hasn't changed. We end where we began, where Paul began. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Jesus is, like I mentioned before, the, um, the center of your testimony. He is the object of our faith as believers. But listen to what John 14 says. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That word helper, meaning comforter, advocate, intercessor. That is what helper means. So that he may be with you forever. The helper is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you, you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Why would Jesus tell us, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and I'll abide in you. How do we abide in him? It's through the Holy Spirit. That's our abiding. It's through the Holy Spirit. Because left to my own devices, what will I do? I will go and wander. I will go after the bait that the world offers. And some of you have been doing that for all your life. Some of your kids are still doing that. Biting the same lure. You live on a lake and my son goes fishing. And every time I look at him, I'm like, it's the same fish you caught. And then next week comes around, isn't that the same fish? That fish has holes everywhere. And we're no different. We're absolutely no different than that fish. Biting the same bait. Wondering. <laughs> and then you see, it's like, how long does it take for you to learn to not go after it? That the lure that this world offers is not worth it. But here's something interesting. And, and I'll end with this. Ian Thomas helped me understand this in, in his book, The Saving Life of Christ. 
because he goes on to mention and explain in the book what it means for the Holy Spirit to dwell in you and in me. Because we perceive that the Holy Spirit is just the one that's going to help us understand the Scriptures. Yes, that's, that's part of his, his ministry, right? To help me understand, to bring light into the Scriptures, yes. But there's also something greater. It's not limited to only that. And this is what he says. He says, the death that he, meaning Christ, lived, qualified him for the death that he died. The death that he died qualifies you to receive the life that he lived. That is the genius of the gospel. That's what he and Tom, and, and, and that just struck me. And it comes out of Romans 5.10. The saving life of Christ. And he goes on to say this. He says, The Lord Jesus died upon the cross not just to get you out of hell and into heaven. He died upon the cross to get God out of heaven into you. Actually calling the shots. Actually controlling what you do with your hands. Actually controlling where you go with your feet. Actually controlling what you say with your lips. Actually controlling what you do with your hands. Actually controlling what you think with your mind. Because you can have a car and you can have the fastest car with the fastest engine. I don't know how many horsepower, 700 horsepower. But if that car doesn't have gas, guess what? What good is that motor? What good is having the sports car? And you and I were meant to be connected with God, but because of Adam, we were disconnected from God. And I said this before, people will not look at man and know who God is. They can't because of our nature, because of our sin. And so, what do you do with that sports car? You put gas in the sports car, right? So that gas can be what? It can be gas functionally, right? So gas can do what gas does. Provide the combustion with the turn and give that engine power. It's the same thing. It's for man, for man to be man. He needs God to be in him functionally. So that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, God in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? So that he can go ahead and live in us and through us, through the power of his Spirit. So that wherever you go, we always like to say that's the mission field. Outside these doors, that's the mission field. Well, guess what? If you're going to that mission field on your own, you're in trouble. I'm in trouble. But if you go to that mission field, understanding that God is in you and He is in residence, then you'll understand that He is in business. And He may choose to use you. And He will use you to bring the gospel to anyone around you. But you need to first understand, and that's for, for believers, that's your encouragement, beloved. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Let Him do what He does best. Let Him be God in you. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then I pray that you come to know the living Christ. That you come to the One. You might want the Holy Spirit, but you're not going to get the Holy Spirit without first coming to Christ. And you have to come to Him first. Acknowledging that you are a sinner. Acknowledging that you are dead 
in your sin and your trespasses. And that you need a Savior. So I pray that, that, that it would be Christ who you go to. Go to him. And beloved, enjoy your faith. Let God give you back the joy of your salvation. I always say that because we forget that. You're more, sometimes I focus, if you're like me, you probably focus more on the depravity of your sin and you forget what great Savior you have. And it's a both, it's a both end. I need to, in order for me to cherish and treasure my Savior, I need to realize the ugliness of my heart. But don't just stop at the ugliness of your heart. Follow through. And remember that there's a Savior whose name is Jesus, who died, not just to get you out of hell and into heaven, but died to get God out of heaven and into you. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray that you use your word. And anything that I may have said, anything that is not of you, Lord, um, just do an absolute, just absolutely delete it from the minds of your people. Let your word remain. Let the truth of the gospel be what encourages and motivates your people here this day and this week. Remind us in every turn with every circumstance that you providentially bring into our lives to remember the great Savior and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, we are aware that we have remaining sin. But we have a, a mighty Savior who overcame sin who defeated death and who gave us the helper, the Holy Spirit. Help us to depend on you. Help us to stop looking to our own devices, to our own efforts, and to start relying on you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, because you said that you had to leave, but that you wouldn't leave us alone. You would send the helper. And that is true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Thank you. May you be honored and exalted through your people today and for the remainder of this week and always. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.